Welcome back, everybody, to another edition of the Started Up Podcast. Today, I have on Eli Nash. He is the co-founder of Mic Drop. And uh, this one was a, a, an unusual episode in the sense that uh, we dug deep on um, some things that were uncomfortable, but I have found that are coming up more and more. And he, he leads off with uh, porn addiction. And since I've done this episode, I've had three separate conversations that is confirming this and starting to, to be a little concerning. So we go into this and we go into uh, basically how he created something from nothing, how he came overcame some obstacles uh, to create something empowering. So I think you're going to really enjoy this one. All right, so let's get right to it. Eli Nash of Mic Drop. Okay, with me now is Eli Nash. He is the co-founder of Mic Drop, and he is also a serial entrepreneur who is Starting to do some really impressive things. Eli, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Don. Okay, so I was introduced uh, for, to a, by a mutual friend. He's like, Don, you got to hear Eli's story. This will resonate so much with teachers. Um, and ironically enough, looking over your bio, this is going to hit both of our audiences because you're definitely living the startup life, and that's inspirational. Um, but they, they had me at uh, – you're bringing uh, – you know, a voice to the voiceless. Uh, and, and I started to, start to kind of dig into your story. So let's, let's start uh, from the beginning on, on what some of the first, the reasons why you wanted to do Mic Drop. The main reason I started Mic Drop is because I saw the power um, of, I, I saw how powerless I felt when I didn't have a voice and how powerful I feel when I have a voice, just how much different that one, um, one single thing is. I'll give you an example, perfect example. So I'm in, I'm recovering from addiction. So specifically till today, porn addiction. And my trigger, this biggest trigger around porn, you know, we say, oh, it's like horniness or something that makes you wanna go there. It's not at all for me, not at all. And uh, I recall distinctly when I learned this, I recall when I started paying attention to, I want to stop watching porn. And I just realized how much is kicking my ass was what were the triggers for it? And what was my biggest trigger that said, okay, now I got to go there. And I remember once I was on the conversation, I was on a conversation with a family member and I was talking to them about how I wasn't happy with the way they mistreated another family member. And they kind of scoffed and just push it to the side and continue the conversation. And as I was on the phone, amazing story, I put it on speaker, I go to Safari web browser and I start, start going to a porn site. And it's been a, a couple of months before then that I hadn't gone at all. And I'm wondering, okay, what just happened that made me go there? Like, why am I, why am I dialing into this porn site just now? Let me just take a step back. And I recalled where I had mentioned the last thing I said was I brought up the discomfort I had with one family member mistreating another, and then they scoffed. So I stopped. I took the phone off speaker, put it back to my ear, and I said, I'm sorry to cut you off, but about a minute and a half ago, you scoffed when I suggested that you mistreated the other family member. And all of a sudden, the urge to escape into porn totally dissipated, and we continued the conversation. And what I noticed from that is that there's so many situations I ended up in where I felt trapped inside of myself. My voice felt like it couldn't project past me. And then all sorts of other things happened. One of it was, you know, addiction. And I'm sure if my escape or my drug of choice was something else, it would have gone there. So seeing how getting a voice has helped me so much, I say, let me share this with the world. It's a beautiful thing. 
So uh, interestingly enough, uh, I had literally yesterday uh, a long conversation with a former student and um, uh, he, he and I were talking about how well he hit his depression. He was kind of filling me in on the last year of his life. And man, am I so happy that things are going better for him. But I, I asked because I, I always get, um, I've had more, there, there's been more attempted suicides and suicides in the last four years than I think my previous 17 years of teaching combined. And so I kind of wanted to go into some of this. And, and ironically enough, he's, he, He's, and I'm not going to name his name, but like he, he said, you know, a lot of it was with porn and like, huh? Yeah. And, and, and I'm starting to hear this from, from more people on how psychologically damaging it is. So uh, I'm glad that you brought that up because like he even said, he's like, you know, you, you, it's, it's psychologically just weird on how um, your brain works and then how bad you feel. And at the same time, how addicting it is. And um, it, it, so you, you kind of threw me for a loop when you said that, that was, that was one of the things that, that you had addiction with. So what came out of it? You, you kind of confronted uh, your family members on it. Like you scoffed. What happened next? He said, I didn't scoff. I said, you did do you think you you did that or not? He said, I didn't do that. And then we had a conversation around there and it was fine. He acknowledged what I said, didn't agree with it completely, but we had a normal conversation. I didn't feel, I didn't feel shut down. What I will say about the porn though, is that, you know, I'm not of the mind that porn is my problem. That's not, not at all. My porn is my solution and my problem is my problem, right? So in this case, my Mm. problem was my inability to express myself and my solution for that used to be porn and today it is expressing myself. It happens to be that porn is a great place to escape to and for whatever reason that became mine, but someone else goes to alcohol, but that doesn't make alcohol a problem for everyone. I drink alcohol just fine. I don't drink too much, but I drink a little bit and just fine. And the reason I don't drink too much is because if I drink too much alcohol, I watch porn. <laughs> but so everyone has a different problem, not necessarily, but people who have addiction find a different drug of choice. Porn was mine, and it's certainly extremely, extremely powerful. But it was really, and that's that's been very important in me letting go of it. Is when I thought the enemy was porn, it was very difficult to escape from it. I, actually, I had a conversation earlier today with um, with a guy who told me he's really, really struggling with porn and. Um, it's kicking his ass and he feels really bad and he can't work and everything else. So I asked him what benefits he got from porn. And he told me, I never got anything. This has been miserable. I said, you can't tell me to get anything. Why do you keep going back there? And I said, when do you remember first watching it? And when did you watch it the most? And I, at the end of the uh, conversation, I recommended to him, I said, I think you have to write a goodbye letter to your friend porn who saved your life through your teenage years because it probably helped you. His home life was toxic and his parents fought a lot and it was abuse and there was all sorts of other stuff going on. And as a teenager, he couldn't deal with it. So having porn was a phenomenal escape. And he actually used, you said suicide before, he actually used that, um, that example. Like sometimes I wanted to kill myself. He said that when he was talking about his childhood, but he didn't connect it to the fact that maybe he didn't kill himself because he watched porn. And that was able, he was able to escape enough times through his childhood. But today he's 30 years old. He doesn't need to escape the way he did when he was 14. 
he's in control of his environment in many more ways. So I said, write a goodbye letter to your friend porn who's helped you, but is no longer useful because now he's, you know, this friend you invited for a couple of months and now he's living with you and your wife and four kids and he's still hanging out. It's like time to go, but thank you very much. You don't kick him out and say, we've never had good times. You've had great times and thank him. And then you can move on. Mm. And, and so in, in the midst of all this, that's interesting, by the way, it's, it's, I, I wasn't expecting that answer. Um, it, so the the biggest thing to come out of all this was in terms of the voice side of it yeah, yeah so for me when i noticed that hey this is my trigger when i don't feel like i can express myself i started expressing myself more and more and i'll give you a mic drop story for example and it connects well you mentioned suicide so let's go there about 5 or 6 months ago we had a a client come to us who in the, in the very first conversation referenced, made references to Robin Williams and others um, like that a couple of times. So he was saying it without saying it. He was mentioning suicide without mentioning suicide. And his big problem was that he was somewhat of a, his job kind of required him to be the happy, excited um, figure. That was what, you know, that was who he was and what he, not who, who he felt he always needed to be. But interestingly enough, he struggled with depression. And the reason why he put on this happy mask that he started doing it was to make himself feel good. But eventually that became a prison because when he walked into a room, say, oh, here's the happy guy. So where he was trapped with himself is he couldn't express, hey, I'm having a tough day. Or he felt like he couldn't express, I'm having a tough day. He felt like he'd disappoint the people around him. He felt like maybe he'd lose business because of it if people knew that he wasn't quite as happy as uh, he was, as he showed himself to be. He did some some comedy in some cases. He did some other work like that, and he thought that it wouldn't work. Finally, through the training that we um, gave him, he shared his story, and he shared his struggle with depression, and it gave him a massive lift. And uh, I, I don't think if you spoke to him today, he would make references to Robin Williams. And I think that's the point. And seeing that over and over, I, I found that not only is it useful for mental health, but it's also useful in business to be able to express oneself. So he said, hey, there's so many use cases for just being able to express oneself better. We created a business around it. And the business is part passion project, but also very much a business. It's very much a business because there's huge demand for it. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm assuming like sharing your vulnerabilities and, and all this has opened yourself up to a lot of experiences too. Yeah. Absolutely. And in, in, in positive ways from a business standpoint, which these stories I also love, you know, I was, um, I was sexually abused as a child. I went on for a number of years. And when I started it was shortly after combating my addiction and starting to deal with that and recognizing the need to express myself I ended up expressing myself to the person who abused me. So we sat down in a meeting and I, it took a while to get there, but to sum up the courage to, to sit down with him and to express how, how he affected me. And we had a very, very healing conversation. And after that, I wanted to share my story. So I shared my story, not in the company setting, but I shared my story and it was put online. It's on YouTube. And one of my employees saw it two years ago. 
uh, the company went through a, the, our company went through a little bit of a transition. I have a company besides for Mike Drop that I've been running for the last 14 years. It went through a little bit of a transition, and we lost a number of employees. And when that happened, uh, one guy in the operations department, the warehouse, who I didn't know particularly well, came over to me and said, I'm not quite sure what's going on with the company. I just want to let you know that I am here no matter what. So I waited for him to finish. And he said, I, I saw your story online and my wife had the same experience. She too was sexually abused and we're blood brothers. I know what that does to someone and I'm here for you forever. So to me, that's a really powerful business example of how by sharing my story as a CEO of a company, it created a bond with someone that I barely knew. Wow. No, I, I love that. Just by being open and vulnerable, um, you, you created new bonds. I love that. Let me take a, a, a slightly left turn because you really got me thinking um, on the vices, right? So, and, and, and I don't think, I don't think that porn is being talked about enough. Uh, it, it's so ubiquitous. And, and even again, talking to the student, it's like, you know, buying weed, you have to go through some, well, unless you're in certain states, but like you have to go through some degree of difficulty to get it. Or buying alcohol, if you're under 21, you have to go through some degree of difficulty to get it. Porn is like log on. And so I was like, yeah, I never thought of that. And he, he was really laying out in detail. The, the left turn I want to take though is um, I, I've seen so many people um, embrace this I'll sleep when I die. I'm on my hustle. I can work 18 hours a day kind of vice as well, which I, I find equally as destructive. Um, don't get me wrong. I like some of the power players, uh, you know, that, that use hustle and grind and all that good stuff. But I think when people lose perspective, like, you know, spending time with family or friends, uh, equally as destructive. You are firmly in the startup world. Um, do you see this as a problem and have you witnessed it? I sometimes joke that I got the, uh, the best and the worst addiction, uh, the work addiction, which is celebrated and respected and say, oh, wow, this person's successful. And the porn addiction, which is looked at like, okay, who the hell is this guy? So yeah, they both could be escapes. There's no question about it. You know, for me, someone asks, well, if I watch a lot of porn, does that mean I'm a porn addict? Right. Or if I work a lot, does that mean I'm a, I'm a work addict? Right. Any of those things. And I think it depends is a are there negative consequences in someone's life? So if my wife is miserable and I'm working a lot and I'm, I see it affecting or my health is bad and I'm working a lot, then, yeah, it could be a vice. But if I just love what I do and I'm working a lot, then maybe not. And the same is true with the, the same is true with other vices. I think it has to have a negative ramification and it also matters why we're going there if we're escaping somewhere it's a lot different than i love what i do and i'm doing this i can tell you that working on mic drop i love what i do and i find myself spending a lot of off hours working on it and thinking about it and i don't feel the addictive quality to it yeah but other times i've stayed at the office and i know that i stayed at the office because i was avoiding a conversation at home (laughs) Yeah. Well, I, I always remember, so I'm without a doubt, my dad is, is always been my best friend and my mom too, but my dad is, is a little kind of different situation. And um, I always remember, I, I believe it was Jimmy Johnson and they were on sports talk radio glorifying that he was going to be so into his job at the Dallas Cowboys that the first thing he did when he left the university of Miami is divorce his wife. Hmm. 
because he was going to be that dedicated. And they're like, whoa, what a coach. And I'm like, what a horrible, <laughs> That's a- horrible thing. <laughs> so I'm like, I mean, clearly maybe it wasn't built on a strong foundation anyway. But when I, I heard that, I'm like, is that true? By the way, I should fact check that before. <laughs> but like, just they, they were glorifying that. And I'm like, you know, it's, it, it's cool to, you know, work hard. Um, but you make a great point. If your hard work is bringing out the best in you and the other people are in on the team, then great. But if you're getting your hustle on and you're neglecting your marital duties, your parent duties, your best friend duties, then, then yeah, I, I think that that's, that, that can be really, really, really destructive. Um, I can, I can say that as an employer, um, I don't like seeing people in the office on a regular basis very late. It doesn't, it's not a, a good sign for me. And I have one guy who I kick out of the office repeatedly and say, just don't work here so late. This is not a sign of success. This is not something I want, not something anyone else wants. I don't think it's good for the company when someone works that many hours and it certainly can't be good for the person. And it's not good for a company if people are doing things that are not good for them. So, yeah. Tell me about the power of compassion inquiry. Compassion inquiry. Yep. Well, it's very similar to what you just heard about with um, what I did with porn, right? Where I said porn was a solution and to write a friend, to write oh, yeah. exactly so, what I did there. I, so what like, I, if, if you were telling people right now, because like, I just like the, the, the term you use, the, the compassionate inquiry, that uh, it, it's, a, it's a unique way of tackling problems. So it's not my term. The term comes from Dr. Gabor Mate, who is a, a very well-known um, addiction expert. He has an amazing book in the realm of in the realms of hungry ghosts, where he shares the stories of addicts that have that have come through his drug clinic. And uh, one of the things he says is, "Don't ask why the addiction; ask why the pain." Right. So often we're tackling like the drug war in America is we're we're Ooh. we're attacking the drug. The drug is not the problem, and the proof for it is is that alcohol stores are available to all of us and some get tripped up there and some don't. And what Gabor Mate says is that if you look at the people who are um, ODing or the people who very severe drug addicts, they all have a personal story. And that story is one of pain. As a matter of fact, he said that from the clinics that he was running, I believe a clinic in Vancouver, where he was weaning um, people off heroin and giving them methadone. And he said 100% of the women who came through his clinic were sexually abused. So what do we want to Wow. Do we want to attack heroin or do we want to attack sexual abuse? And what compassionate inquiry does is ask those kind of questions is why the pain? Like, why is there pain Mm -hmm. here? Or why am I seeking a solution in porn? I'm not making the enemy porn. So instead of saying uh, one of the ways when I'm communicating it to someone else, I say, instead of saying the word why, use the word for what reason. Mm. So why are you doing that? Which is a lot of judgment laced into that. For what reason am I doing that? And yeah. that opens up a whole list of, for what reason am I watching porn? Because I feel like I can't express myself. Great. Is there another way that you can express yourself? And that opens up a whole different level of exploration. Yeah. Well, I the thing I, I love that, but the the hard part is immediately I'm I'm playing out different scenarios in my head. It also requires a dialogue, which I think is really really missing, because you know I always remember you know every time and it's horrible first of all, but every time there is a mass shooting, the blame is on the gun, 
you know, the gun killed people. I'm like, no, a really deranged man killed people. And while I've got opinions on certain weapons, I I agree with you that um, it's for what reason does this man want to shoot so many people? And and that's the one thing that drives me nuts. The political ideologies on, on both sides are like, there is no dialogue. There is no, let's come to an understanding and understand the, the root causes. Instead, let's, you know, vilify, you know, one thing or another. And, and well, so I, I wish that there were more compassion inquiry. I, I think oftentimes there's just a blame culture, right? So on, on the one side, I find it amazing that when there's, when there's a shooting, it's the far right and far left. Yep. Both are proven right. And it's like, let's say the same thing happened. And on the far right, they'll say, well, had there been more people with guns, that wouldn't have happened. He wouldn't have even got the shot off. Right. And our left will say, well, if you didn't have any guns, it's a gun that killed someone. And it's like, maybe we'd stop blaming. Maybe that's not the answer. The answer isn't just to blame someone. Bad things happen. Yeah. Oh, they're always going to happen. Not necessarily someone or something is to blame. And let's look at it and let's just ask those questions. It's far more useful than these, than these blame reactions. And it goes for the self also. We're often so hard to blame. I think in American culture, we're, we're taught to be hard on one, someone. Yeah. But we have to kind of beat him down. And if we, if, if we give any sort of escape, people are going to go there. Yeah. But that's not the case. That's not the way. We don't need to, we don't need to be so hard on ourselves. Like I've been much more gentle about my, um, my relationship with porn. I used to blame myself horribly when I went there and said, I'm really bad and I'm going to be punished for it. Then everyone's going to hate me and all sorts of negative self-talk around it, but I couldn't stop. And today I talk about my friendship with porn, but we just haven't spoken in two and a half years. And we've spoken very little in the last six years. Yeah. That's, that's, I like that insight. That's really cool. Um, so back to, again, you, you're, you're now kind of like really into the, the startup kind of world and, and all, and all the highs and lows of that. Um, do you think that, that, um, the startup culture that is starting to become more, um, prevalent, uh, is there kind of a, a, a mindset or, um, you know, kind of like you're talking about earlier uh, from Victor, from victim to Victor mindset that we could be better prepared for that? I, you know, for 15 years ago, I had my first startup and that was, I started in school on no budget and was really a way to put myself through the next phase of school. And it took me a few years to realize it was a business. This is the first time I'm in a startup mode and I know I'm in a startup mode. So as an example, when I started Mic Drop eight months ago, I was very determined not to take outside funding and for myself not to, um, not to put too much of my own money into Mic Drop. So I started it with putting $10,000 in to get started and haven't put a dollar in since then. And what it forces and requires me to do is create a product that customers are happy to pay with. And that's, I think, in terms of the um, startup mindset, like that part of the startup culture, I absolutely love where that scrappiness and figuring out how to create a product that people are going to love and the mindset that, yeah, I need to worry about these few hundred dollars from this customer in order to pay the next person. And that scrappiness, it forces us into massive creativity. You know what I say? Um, necessity I, is the invention of yeah. something. <laughs> mother of invention. invention. Yeah, right? invention. Necessity is the mother of invention. So oftentimes when I see startups focus a lot on raising money, and I understand 
different businesses are different. So I'm not saying that no business should raise money at the beginning, but oftentimes when the focus is always there, I think it makes it really difficult. You asked me a question about victim to victor related to a startup. Can you rephrase that so I can? Well, I mean, uh, well, just kind of what you're talking about earlier that you know we're a blame culture in in some ways, but that's the one thing I've ref- I've found refreshing about the startup culture. Like, you can be the victim. You have to be the victor. Like they, that's just it. Like you know who's the blame? Like, I was uh, Tom Bilyeu. You know, had some you know kind of funny scenario where like if my wife was hit by a meteor, it's my problem. It's my fault. Because I built the house there. You know, he takes ultimate responsibility for what he puts himself into. You know, when people are saying, oh, the system's against me or, and and by the way, sometimes there's some truth to that. But the startup world is like, I got to make this happen, period. You know, you know, the market is the market. I I can't be the victim. And and, and I I kind of appreciate that. Yeah, in terms of that, I've I've never heard it. You're making me think about some things because I've never heard it presented in that way because a lot of people talk about, you know, the young generation as just wanting everything for free, but there's a tremendous startup culture and a lot of people trying to do things on themselves. And that, I mean, the results, <laughs> the results you get are the results you get. There's no one to point. There's no boss to blame. It's just either, either the money's in the account and yeah. then you're the hero or it's not and you're the zero. I mean, there's nothing to say. Absolutely. Although it's funny before we were recording, we we're talking uh, before we went air, you're talking about some of the startup cultures that you've met too are kind of like just burning through other people's cash. And I think that's, that's the exception. Um, I had a friend of mine who a long time ago, um, I'm not going to say <laughs> with which company, but he helped start a company in the Silicon Valley area. And he's like, he, you know, he's just, he's a good Midwestern guy. I'll say that. And like, the point of his business was to make money. And these guys were like, just excited that they had a kickoff party and they were excited that they had, you know, lost $3 million this quarter and they thought they were going to lose 4.5. And he's like, wait, should we be throwing this party? <laughs> shouldn't, shouldn't we be getting closer to a profit? And, you know, people celebrating their series C rounds because the first two rounds didn't cover enough. And he's like, that's, that's kind of crazy, right? <laughs> They're kind of like two sides to the startup culture. And that's why I mentioned the way um, we chose to do it with Mic Drop is not to take money. And it's not that we never will. Once we get, once we get our, uh, our feet under us a lot more and a lot larger business and say, okay, if we want to develop something specifically or we want a strategic partnership that we feel can take us to the next level, then perhaps it makes sense. But certainly in terms of getting from zero to one, I wanted to do it by creating a product that people are satisfied with. And what I was referring to was an investment that I had done where I think for eight or nine years, they were losing money. And I invested into this, I invested into this company and I, on paper was a great investment and there should have been no reason why we couldn't turn the business around and start making money with it from an economic standpoint. But whenever I had discussions with any of the team there, it was always around how to get more investors or more money from the investors or including myself. And there wasn't that focus on making the customers satisfied so that we're making enough money on the customers to keep the doors open. There was always one or another creative way to try to get more investors on board or more money from the existing investors. And I think that's a very dangerous framework for, for startups because that's not accepting responsibility. Ultimately as a business, we want to get paid by our customers. Yeah. And it also forces (laughs) us into a much better product. Oh, absolutely. Again, back to your invention is the mother of all necessity. I, I totally agree. And, and, and you've, you've 
said it eloquently that that is the two sides of you know, part of the culture is you know it has to work because it has to work and then the other side is and i'm i'm not gonna pick on silicon valley but it is a little bit more silicon valley-esque of like you know this is so crazy that it just might work 99% chance it'll fail but it just might work and uh relying on investors and stuff like that but i will say that they they take more massive risks for sure um that is the one thing that you know being uh not at your level but in the startup culture as well the midwest is so funny in the sense that things have to make sense before they invest it so obviously those unicorn ideas that can go huge are uh, a, a little not as embraced as much around here and a lot of those investors are looking for that meaning they they know going in that yeah. one deal is going to work in every 10 and they still still say that much but that right. one which is going to work is going to be a thousand x and on paper yep. right on paper it could be a good strategy and investment firms make a lot of money like that but as far as the individuals a lot of them running it are not focused as much on the uh, on the customers, but obviously some of the biggest companies came from there. So who am I to say the negative? I'm talking more about just the, the mindset of personal responsibility and how that relates to the startup culture. Yeah, very good. Um, any other any other tidbits you want us to tell us about Mic Drop? So there are a couple aspects to it. Um, there's the the personal aspect, which which I've mentioned, right? The gentleman with. Uh, struggling with depression and sharing and my own story of sharing my own story and then having someone in the warehouse. But as a team building, we, we've done this in corporations. We've done this. I've uh, done some work with the military. We've done some work um, recently with um, a boys and girls club in, uh, in Broward. Took a number of clubs through there and teenagers. And what's amazing about it is when there's something simple like sharing a story, it just seems universal that life has a way of kicking the voice out of people. And when with this product, what's been the coolest part is that it could be used individually. It could be used within corporations. And we've been in uh, very, in uh, financial firms, some of the largest in the country. And then the same day teaching a group of teenagers, the same skill sets to, on um, the same skill sets through mic drop, which is really cool, the universal aspect of it. But what I really wanted to talk about was the, from within a corporation, like how many people in corporations don't um, trust each other and how much that affects. So as an example, you know, Patrick Lencioni has a very famous business book called The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. I'm not sure if you've, you've heard of that book. I have, but I've not read it, to be honest with you. So very simple, but it's a basically uses a fable and a story to say, these are the five dysfunctions of a team. And the core dysfunction is a lack of trust which leads to a lack of vulnerability and a lack of, you know, a, a lack of discomfort with conflict and so on and so forth. And if there's no conflict then there's no buy-in and if there's no buy-in then there's no attention to results and everything is built on this trust factor. So I, uh, I saw somewhere where they're doing an assessment on how to measure trust in an organization, right? Cause trust kind of seems like very, very vague. Do I trust you? Do you trust me? How can, you know, corporations want to be able to measure everything. And uh, you know, there's uh, Stephen Covey Jr. has a book called The Speed of Trust. He says, like, trust has a tax. Trust has a massive tax to the system. When there's no trust and when there's lack of trust, it pays a huge dividend. And the best example for that is an airport, right? We walk into an airport. There's a lack of trust in airports. It slows everything down. It takes us a long time to get through security. And it's much more expensive for everyone. 
So we understand the importance of trust, but how do you quite measure whether there's trust or no trust? And this assessment actually says, how well do you know the personal stories of your colleagues? And I love that because if we trust each other, we, we know what's going on in each other's lives. Mm. And that's not the same thing as being unprofessional and bringing your, you know, we, we kind of say, leave your stuff at the door. Yes, to a yeah. degree, right? Get yeah. your job done, but don't leave your stuff at the door to the point where we don't know anything about you. And yeah. I'll, give, I'll give some examples in my own company because we do mic drop every year here. We've done it a number of times and we take eight or 10 people in the company and they go through the training and we do a theater event where they share their story in front of the whole company. We had a controller a couple of years ago, the controller of our company, who was a beauty pageant winner for multiple years as a teenager and a young, um, a young adult. And in her young 20s, I believe it was, cooking in the kitchen, a pot exploded <clears throat> all over her, burns on most of her body. So as she was healing, she obviously noticed that her career as a model was over. And she reinvented herself and her career and became a, um, a top finance person, controller, and very involved in her community and helping other people get ahead. I was working with her for three years. I didn't know that story. Wow. And what, what happens when you know that story? What appreciation oh, yeah. do you have for that person? Empathy, there's, just, yeah. there's, there's just so much more and so much benefit the way her team will go to bat afterwards. It's not looking at her like, oh, you're the controller. You're this bossy controller who does this. It's like, no, you're this person who's been through unbelievable obstacles and I'll go to bat for you and you'll go to bat for me. And I've seen so many examples of that within corporations with just by learning to get to know each other, um, people are, are more effective. And my single favorite kind of mic drop story, we were in one of the largest financial firms in the country. And... We're doing a training session there. The tra it's a group session, say 10 or 12 people in the company. They're all on a training program to become wealth managers and dealing with, you know, some of the wealthiest people in the country's money. And one guy was almost not talkative at all during the workshop. After the workshop, he goes to the, our, our head trainer and he says, um, the reason I didn't want to share anything is because I can't talk about my personal story inside this kind of company. So why not? So when I was a kid, my dad went bankrupt and we ended up living in a trailer park for a lot of our lives. And it just, the way I grew up and seeing that if my colleagues knew that I grew up with a bankrupt dad, I just don't think I'd be able to work here. I don't think I'd have this job. Oh, wow. And the trainer's looking at him and saying, are you like, th this was a layup I'm, to me. It was a layup, but he's like, are yeah. you crazy? That's he says, this is what, right. This is exactly what you yeah. want to do. He says, tell your colleagues that. And not only that, when you become a wealth manager, tell your clients that. Absolutely. They'll understand the urgency you have around protecting their money. Tell that story. Don't hide that. That's your gold. That's not liability. That's an asset. And we just have so many stories like that. And the benefits of being able to bring stories out within corporations yeah. is something I love to do. Yeah, I, I, I love those. I mean, I, I, the, when Simon Sinek um, did that interview um, on Inside Quest and he was more saying, he's like, look, the next time you have an extra five minutes before your meeting starts, just ask people how they are. Put your, put your phone down. Um, gaining those insights with your coworkers is everything. So I, I love that. Yeah, well, I think that if every corporation in America did mic drop or something like it, sharing personal stories yep we'd have very we'd have very different work environments in this country totally agree 
Totally agree. When everybody's talking about empathy, it's one thing to talk about. It's another to, to get things in place to, to create those environments. Well, we Eli, there, we got to emulate. You know, absolutely. we got to represent. So, yeah. But Eli, I appreciate you being on so much. Uh, places that they can go to check out more things about Mic Drop and, and Eli Nash? So Mic Drop is micdrop.one.one. If anyone from Major League Baseball is listening to this podcast, We'd like micdrop.com. They own it. They don't use it. But right now it's micdrop.one. You can check us out. And we have a ton of YouTube videos. What we do is we train people. We specialize really with people who are have a real fear of public speaking. And we put their um, stories on YouTube. So if you go to YouTube, you have to type in Mike Drop with Roshlow, R-O-S-H space L-O-W-E. He's the head trainer just because Mike Drop is a popular word on YouTube. If you, tra- if you see that there, Mike Drop with Rosh Lowe, just tons of amazing stories. Everything from addiction to loss of a loved one to mental illness to anxiety, depression, success, everything in between. I got my story up there. So I check out our YouTube channel and uh, a lot of the stories out there. We love bringing them out to the world. I love it. Makes it a better place. Yeah. All right. Eli Nash, thank you so, so much for being on the show. Thank you, Don.